Today you'll meet Janet. Janet's mom, Cass, died from breast cancer the day Janet graduated from high school. It was 1995 and she was 18, right at the start of her adult life. Her entire world shattered the day her mom died. In 2020, Janet started the Mother Love Project to honor the 25th anniversary of her mom's death. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, can you please leave a rating and review? It really helps. And now, Janet's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have with me Janet. Uh, Janet's in Canada, and um, she has a, a pretty amazing story. So I feel like I can't do a whole lot more of introduction without feeling some of her thunder. So I will turn the mic over to her and let her tell us her story. And then as always, I'll come back with some questions at the end. So thank you, Janet, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. I'm really grateful to be on the podcast. And I think what you're doing is so amazing. And as we were talking earlier about how much work there is to be done in the grief and loss space and in our culture that we don't do grief and loss very well. And so it's really nice to meet somebody else on this, on this grief journey. Um, where to begin? Uh, my name is Janet Willem Wright. I am from Ottawa, Ontario, which is the capital of Canada. Um, I didn't grow up here. I'm from Vancouver originally, um, which for your American listeners is about three hours north of Seattle, Washington. Um, my family uh, consisted of my brother, uh, who's younger than I am, and my parents, my mom, Cass, my dad, Gareth. And uh, I grew up very solidly middle class. I had a lot of advantage material advantage in my life. I'm very privileged to have that. Um, my childhood is not something that I often talk about uh, with fond memories, um, which is interesting because on the outside, my family looked perfect. We just looked like the waspiest, <laughs> most well-put-together group of people, you know, with the pretty house and the nice neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. My parents were both very heavy drinkers. Um, it caused an enormous amount of conflict between me and them. I'm the oldest in my family. I've always considered myself the, the outsider uh, looking in on my family and wondering why the hell my parents made the choices that they did. Even as a young kid, I didn't understand the choices that they made. Um, and it got me in a lot of trouble. Um, a lot of trouble. My parents used to say that I, uh, you know, I was too smart for my own good. And uh, that was, that's sort of the theme, I guess, that, that ran through our relationship. Um, my mom, Cass, was an advertising executive. If you have anyone has ever seen Mad Men, um, she literally was Peggy. Uh, she grew up in that business and uh, became extremely successful at the sort of peak of her career. She was a creative director and vice president of a large advertising agency in Vancouver and was one of the only women executives in that business in British Columbia in the 80s. And unfortunately in 1990, um, I was 13. My brother was nine. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And at the time, I remember thinking she got this phone call 
we got this phone call at home. Remember the phones, the rotary phones, and you only had one of them in your house and it was in the kitchen and the cord was like 10 feet long. That's what we had. And it was yellow. And I remember my mom, it was Thanksgiving weekend, which was always in our family, a really big weekend because it was Thanksgiving, my dad's birthday, my parents' wedding anniversary was always that weekend. So there's always a lot of activity. My mom got a phone call and it was her doctor. And she said, you know, that the doctor had told her that the news was not good, uh, that they had taken, you know, a biopsy of the, um, the tumor and it was cancerous. And I, I mean, the work, it just exploded. It was like our whole lives were just shattered in that one phone call, this perfect mirage of our lives just disappeared literally overnight. Uh, my mom had to leave her job or she made the choice to leave her job. I don't know. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of discussion about it, but she just started underwent um, a lot of treatments, so chemotherapy and then radiation or radiation and then chemotherapy and armor the order. Um, and then she had a mastectomy and it was incredibly difficult for her. Her recovery was brutal. She was in enormous pain all the time. Um, she left her big corporate job, you know, where she worked 70 hours a week. Um, and up until that time, I never really saw my mom that much. You know, I saw her on the weekends, but really she was just always at work. Um, we had a nanny, so that was the person who was kind of with us all the time. And, you know, when my mom got sick, then she was at home. So at 13, I kind of got my mom back, which was interesting. You know, it was great because I wanted to be around her so much. She was like this giant, just beacon of light and love. And she was beautiful and talented and just filled everybody with love around her, her friends adored her. Um, she was a very proud mom. She loved my brother and I very much, but she was very absent a lot. And even when she was present, she was absent. Uh, my mom drank a lot. And I guess in those days, I don't know, just seemed normal. Uh, I now know that it wasn't, um, <laughs> that other people's parents did not drink as much as mine. Um, but at 13, I didn't know that. I just thought this was the way that we lived. And, you know, my teen years were really tough. Uh, my mom worked from home. She had her own business, like doing copywriting and, and being in advertising. Um, so she was around a lot. And that caused a lot of conflict between her and I. We fought a lot. But we were also really close. Um, we did a lot of things together. And we traveled a lot together. And we shopped a lot together. And I always enjoyed spending that time with her. Um, unfortunately, when I was 17, um, we got the news that the cancer had come back and it had spread to her liver. She was having lower back pain or what she thought was lower back pain. Um, she'd had a chronic diving injury when she was a teenager and had really damaged her back. And so she thought, oh, okay, maybe that's what it is. She went back to the doctor and unfortunately it had spread into her liver and it was everywhere in her liver and they had given her not a lot of time. Um, we didn't really know that. My parents did not talk about her diagnosis. And in fact, when I asked them directly about it, um, you know, they basically shrugged me off and said, well, you know, mom's gonna beat this. It's gonna be fine. 
So it was just a lot of denial and a lot of um, just sort of downplaying of my panic. I was really panic stricken. Um, you know, I was about to go into grade 12 and planning for university and where I was going to go. And one of the last trips that my mom and I took was to come to Ontario and to go to a bunch of universities. We were doing a tour because I had wanted to go to university in Ontario. Um, we had seen all of her childhood friends, all the friends that she'd grown up with and people who were really, really close to her. And that was really fun. That was a really fun trip that we had together. And I remember we got to the airport in Vancouver and my mom had lost all her hair. Like she was, she was not well. They had done, you know, doing chemotherapy again. And she said, Psst, watch this. So she goes up to the counter at the travel agent. She said, you know, I'm struggling. I'm ill. I'm, you know, I'm really not doing well. And the travel agent says, oh, Mrs. Golden, I'm so sorry. Can we upgrade you to business class? And she went, oh, that would be so great. Walked away, turned what looked at me, big smile on her face. She's like, we're ready to fly business class, kid. <laughs> I was classic, my mom, like just classic. Just she had no, um, no qualms about doing that whatsoever. And we had the most wonderful time. And, you know, we went to all these different universities and, you know, University of Toronto and all these places that I'd heard about and I'd read about. And I just thought, and this was pre-internet. So I remember telling this story before and, and saying to folks, like this at a time, there was no internet. We did not have the World Wide Web. There was no social media. There was no way of connecting. It was like books and the library and that was it. And, you know, magazines. All of us grew up in magazines. I did. So, you know, the magazines were like U of T and Western and, you know, our equivalent of like Harvard and Yale. Like these are really prestigious universities here. And that's, and I was a really, really good student. I was a straight A student and I wanted to go to the best universities. And um, my parents had always just assumed that that's where I was going to go. Um, little did I know that my parents had made no plans for my university education. There was no money. There was no plan. Uh, there was there was no uh, there was no financial means for me to do that. Um, and so when I was accepted to the University of British Columbia, which is uh, in Vancouver, I had gotten early acceptance and I had gotten a full scholarship. So I thought, okay. I'm, I'll go there, but I want to live in residence because my friend was going to live in residence. And that was part of the deal was part of this recruitment package was like, you could, we'll give you residence. Like not, they'll let me, they'll let me stay in residence, which they didn't normally do for people who are local. And I said, I want to go, like I want to move out. And my dad said, no, I won't pay for it. I won't let you go. And we had a huge fight huge fight. And as this classic of my mom, who was just like terrified of uh, conflict and didn't want to fight with my dad, and she was also dying. Um, she just kind of backed out of that fight and let me fight it. And he and I went 10 rounds. And I said, I'm, I'm going. Like, I don't care what you say, I'm leaving. And uh, yeah, my mom died the day I graduated from high school, almost at the same time. And telling the story still breaks my heart. She wanted to be there so badly, but um, she was dying and she was in palliative the week for, well, about a week before um, my graduation. And so she 
whom she wasn't able to, at the end, she wasn't able to speak or see. Um, her senses had, had gone. Um, and I found out at my graduation ceremony that she'd gone. And I had so wanted to take the tape of me, you know, the videotape that people had to take me uh, back and show her. I had said to her that morning, I'm going to come back. Um, sorry. And I'm going to show you the tape. And, you know, she wasn't responsive, but I just wanted to play her the tape. And I had won a bunch of awards at the ceremony and I wanted to show her my awards. And I remember sitting on this stage with all of my fellow graduates and my dad was late to the ceremony. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Like maybe the traffic's bad or like maybe they're just running time. But it was in fact because she had died that they were there at the hospital and they were sort of like making arrangements with my brother. And the rest of that day and the weeks that followed were just a blur. I was in shock. My whole life was, you know, upended, but I didn't realize at the time, like how destroyed my life would be. And um, my dad just couldn't cope. He just was not able to cope with that loss. And he wasn't able to be a parent. He wasn't able to be there for my brother and I. He, I think he expected me to kind of play that role. Uh, and then when I didn't, he was very angry at me. And he spent a long time being very angry at me. And I was very angry at him. Um, I still am. <laughs> um, you know, so I left and I went to university and I went on with my life and did two graduate programs and um, met my partner, Megan, uh, when I moved to, to Ontario uh, after my undergraduate degree. And we've been together for, what, 22 years. <laughs> been married for, uh, for 17. And uh, we were one of the first couples, one of the first same-sex couples to legally marry in Canada in 2006, which we're very proud of. And we have two daughters, uh, Finley and Lennon. They're 12 and seven. And they're just like, the light of our lives. So my family, the family that I have created with Meg is literally the center of my life. And everything I do revolves around that, <laughs> essentially. Um, but in, in, you know, fast forward, I ran from my grief for a long time. And, and similarly to one of the stories I was listening to before, my, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety when I was 24. And so I've been living with depression and anxiety for a long time. And in uh, 2015, it got really bad, really, really bad. And I was almost hospitalized. And as a result of that, you know, having a newborn, having a five-year-old, I just realized, whoa, like my life is bottoming out and I need to do something. And so I had been in therapy on and off for the last 20 years, you know, successfully sometimes, not successfully at other times, but really this was, this was critical. It was a crisis and I found a therapist, thankfully, who I've been working with for the last six years and she has revolutionized my life and helped me manage my anxiety and manage my depression and got me through some very dark times. And I really feel like with the help of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what we have done together, I've managed to really um, 
help myself to manage my symptoms. Like I manage my depression and anxiety more like a chronic illness now um, than, you know, a mental health crisis that would crop up, you know, several times a year where I would get really depressed and then I would kind of have to like work through that. So, so I've really learned a lot more about my disease and about the ways in which that I can manage my symptoms and what I need to put in place for my life to help me manage my depression and anxiety. So she's, my therapist is amazing and, and has helped me so much. And then in 2020, it was the 25th anniversary of my mom's death. And that just felt like such a huge milestone for me. It was so weighty. You know, I just like felt the weight of that milestone and we had been in lockdown for three months and I had some time on my hands. And I thought, you know, like, I got to do something. I got to, there's no gravestone um, for my mom, which still breaks my heart. And I really wanted a place to memorialize her. I needed a place to memorialize her. And I was looking around and I thought, like, how am I going to do this? Like, am I going to plant a tree? Am I going to, like, you know, get a plaque? Like, what am I going to do? And I just thought, you know, I'm a writer. I trade and I want to write my story. I want to tell my story in my world. And I, I thought, you know, maybe other women that I know who have also lost their moms would like to do that too. And so I literally just created a website. One day it just came to me. I thought it should be called the Mother Love Project. I have no idea why. I just, it just came to me. And I created this website and I went on Instagram and I created an Instagram handle and I just said, here's my story. I put it out there. If you would like to contribute your story, let me know. I will put it on the website. I'm not going to edit it. I'm not going to do anything. You send me your words. I'm going to put it up. And women started reaching out to me and saying, like, I would really like to share my story. And in the last two and a half years, we've got almost 100 women from around the world. You know, thousands of people have visited the site and read the stories. And to me, it's just like a miracle. It's like my heart, my soul. It just brings me so much joy. I have gained just this renewed sense of like, this is what my life work should be. I'm a very proud public servant. I work for the federal government. I, I am very proud of the work that I do on behalf of Canadians every day. But this is the work that fills my soul and my heart with joy and love. And I do it with, it's a great honor for me to share women's stories um, and to connect in that way. Um, it's just to build this really beautiful community of women who just understand, they just get it. It's like, you almost don't even need to say anything. It's like, oh, I totally get that. Totally understand. So my friend, Christine and I were talking in the fall, this past fall, and she lost her mom when she was 15, um, also to cancer. And I said, what do you think about doing something here in person, like live? And she said, oh, we should do that. We, we need to do that. And I said, well, would anybody come? She said, well, I'll come. I'm sure other people will come. So we did our first Mother Love event in November. And we had, there were six of us. And it was like the, one of the best things I've ever done. It was so great. It was so meaningful. We just connected. It almost instantaneously, right? We're, we're strangers. We'll get in this room together. We start sharing our stories. And it's like, boom, instant connection. And then Christine, who's a yoga instructor, she did some yoga with us, which was really beautiful because movement and breath work is so powerful, I think, for healing. 
and we're doing another one uh, at the end of April. And um, Tiffany, who I think has been on your podcast, is doing one in San Diego, and we've got another one potentially happening in St. Mary's, Ontario, which is which is near Kitchener, uh, Waterloo, um, for those of you in Canada, and hopefully more maybe more. I don't know. It's kind of growing. It's going to be a, hopefully it's going to be a thing, which is really incredible to me. It's so, it's so powerful. And so, you know, today I think I've got a really different relationship with my grief than I did even two years ago. I feel very empowered by my, by my grief. I like lean into it now wholeheartedly. Um, and I don't feel like this broken shell of a person who had something really terrible happen to her and never recovered. I think I feel very, I feel very empowered by it now. And I, I talk about my mom. I talk about my mom to my girls. I talk about my mom online all the time. And it's great. You know, my mom would have been 77 in the past. I would have just avoided that day. Just like the plague. Like I'm not talking about it. I'm not even acknowledging it. And this year I was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really acknowledge it. And it felt really good. And even though I miss her desperately still, I, I felt, I felt full of love for her that day instead of sadness, which was, which was really good. So that's my, that's my story. I, I love what you're doing. Um, I, I, you know, you and I are in the same field, you know, yours is writing and mine is more speaking. Mm. Although I do keep thinking I want to write a book, so um, but you're right about that community of women who get it. Um, funny how, you know, looking back, like I was, so, the, the pandemic was so stressful just because the rules kept changing and what do you do and what don't you do? And as a parent with, like my daughter came home from spring break of her freshman year of college and never went back. And she was not happy about that, which I blame her. I, I want to be in South Carolina too and not here. But there was just so much, so much um, um, unknown. That's the part that was so hard for me. Luckily, three years later, I can look back and, and I'm so grateful, though, for the time that I had to process. And, you know, I didn't, I think my first podcast episode was in 2021, um, but I started the Daughters Without Moms online at the end of the year. And because I was so done with social media. I'm not a huge social media person to start with, but just the judgment and the shame and the ridicule and things that were going online. I was like, I am done with this. But the grief community online is simply amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's been incredible to have women from all over the world, women who have completely different backgrounds, cultural, religious, linguistic, economic, completely different from me. And yet we have something in common and we can relate. People I've never met before, they feel so close to. It's incredible, this like global community. I, I just never would have thought, and I'm the same with you. I have this very love-hate relationship with social media, but on this, it is all love all the time because I have made some amazing connections and, it's just been great just to see, like there was, <laughs> I, I looked at the stats the other day and there was somebody from Papua New Guinea on the site. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I was floored, literally the other side of the world. There's a woman reading these stories and I thought, oh my goodness, that, that really makes me happy. I'm doing something good. This is good. So you told me a story before we started recording that you didn't mention here 
so I don't, if you don't want to, we don't have to, but I was just, I thought that was pretty um, significant. Yeah, no, I will. I think, I think we were talking before about after my mom died, I was asked to speak at fundraisers for breast cancer, the breast cancer research and great cause, great organizations, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But I was really young and so traumatized. I was so in shock, you know, from losing my mom and, and, you know, went and gave a speech in front of a thousand people in a ballroom. And, you know, I, um, I look back on, at 18, I look back on that now and I think, why would anybody ask me to do that? Like, it's just so unfair. They knew that I wouldn't say no, because I couldn't, like, how can I say no to that? There, no one, no one protected me. No one protected me. I was so alone. I was so by myself. I had lost the one person in my life who would protect me and try to keep me safe and you know was trying to do what was best for me she didn't always make that happen um you know she was very flawed in her own way but she she really had my best interests at heart and knew what I wanted knew what I what I wanted to do and um always tried to help me get there and I had nobody after she died I was so alone and to be asked to go in front of so many people and tell a very difficult story. I think now we have this, this concept of like trauma porn and we know this just sort of like these transformational kind of stories about resilience and bravery and courage and how traumatic it is to have to retell this story of her dying and, you know, to do that on behalf of an organization trying to raise money. I get it. I get that the, the survivor story is very important, even though I'm not a survivor of cancer. Um, but it felt it feels very exploitative to me now. I was not an adult. I was a young adult. I had just had something incredibly traumatic happen to me. And I think that there was no, I think because of who I am and that I'm able to hide my feelings really, really well. And I sort of project this, like I'm very strong and very capable and I have since I was young because I had to literally to survive in my family. You had to be strong and capable. And I've always done that really well. And so, of course, when somebody asked me, like, will you go and do this speech? I'm like, sure, I will, of course. Right. I'm never going to admit I am so terrified. And literally that day, I thought I was going to be sick to my stomach. I was so nervous. Like, I was shrieking. And then, of course, as soon as the lights come on and it's showtime, you know, the Janet who can perform um, shows up. And I've never felt so alone in my entire life. I just felt used. I just felt like I was like their little puppet that they could like trot out, you know, say the words that were necessary to get the checkbooks writing, you know. When we spoke about it before, you used yeah. the word people pleaser, but this time you are talking more about because you were strong and you were, you know, um, resilient and because yeah. you had to be that way in your family. And that's yeah. one thing that I realized through this journey. Um, always bristled it when people would say, you know, about dependencies. And I was like, oh, I'm not dependent on anything. I am independent. And then I found this woman named Terry Cole, who talks about high functioning dependency. And I was so dependent on my high functioning. But you're yeah. saying that you had that even because of your family dynamic before your mom died. 
Yeah. And I probably did too, because my parents yeah. separated when I was eight and, and there yeah. was a lot of other stuff going on. But do you feel like what your mother lost just in, for me, it intensified it then, then I was just like, Oh, I'm going to do all the things and check all the boxes. And. Oh yeah. It was like, I often think about my anxiety because I've always been anxious. Even as a kid, I think about my anxiety as a fire that was in me and losing my mom was like pouring gasoline on that fire. It just became out of control. And the only way that I coped was through school. So I became a workaholic. Uh, I was a workaholic before that, but it was, it was tempered a little bit by other things. But when my mom died, it was like, oh, that's rough. It was just school, 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 100% school, never did anything else. And I drank, I drank a lot. I drank a lot heavily. When you have somebody who's anxious, has no coping skills, mother dies, then you go to university for the first time and you're living on your own. Hello, there's a recipe for disaster. So, I mean, I think I survived that first year at university being on my own without my mom because of my friends. I know that I did. They were, I had very good friends who were there with me. I met good friends when I was there and they just kind of like, they saw that I was suffering so badly and they just kind of like surrounded me and just protected me and kept me safe as much as I could. Um, I did have a therapist at the time. I don't know how uh, much I was able to see her, but I don't remember. I know I remember seeing her and I remember that that was helpful to have that as an outlet, but I drank way too much, way too much. For years, I drank way too much. and um just had I just had really unhealthy coping habits because I just didn't know I had no coping skills my parents gave me none none so why would I how would I develop healthy healthy coping mechanisms you know what am I going to develop them after my mom died when I didn't have them before uh no probably not it took me years to figure out how to live in a healthy way to live in a, in a kind of balanced way. And to be frank, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm 45, I'm gonna be 46 in a month. I'm still not sure I know what I'm doing, frankly. Um, I think I'm better now than I was even five years ago um, because again, I know a little bit more about how to help myself and to watch for those warning signs of, of depression and, and when my anxiety gets really out of control. Uh, but at the time it was just like, it was like a wildfire. I had no, uh, yes, high functioning. Absolutely. I could get, I could get away with it um, because I'm, you know, I'm smart and I'm hardworking and pretty much that was it. Nobody worried about me. Nobody worried about me because it seemed like I was doing fine when literally I was like dying inside, dying for years um, and didn't feel like I could tell anybody except for this, this therapist that I saw. So yeah, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a rough time. Yeah, you were mirroring that, I was trying to look for what you called it, that perfect mirage that you had, you know, experienced growing up in your home, like you said, like the perfect family. And I think that's what, yeah, that's what we learned. So can you tell me, you did mention cognitive behavioral therapy. Tell the listeners a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, so CBT is really interesting. It's one of the, or it's the only sort of therapeutic modality um, that's been clinically proven 
to improve anxiety and depression. So they've actually done lots of scientific research on it. And CBT is basically that idea that our thoughts and behaviors are connected. And so when you start looking at the behaviors and reframing the thoughts, you can, you can create healthier behaviors. And so for me, I had a lot of health anxiety. Um, I had death anxiety. <laughs> I have generalized, I mean, I have generalized anxiety disorder, so that it's, it's just sort of everything, but I would get really triggered by, um, you know, this idea that my mom was 49 when she died, you know, I'm going to be 46 this year. So for the longest time, I was like, I'm not going to live to 50. There's no way. Right. And I think that through this, this process of reframing, um, my thoughts and, and doing thought records, that's, that's a big part of, um, CBT, what you do is you look at the thought that you're having, you write it down, and then you go through this process of, you know, is it, um, is it, do you have evidence? Do you have evidence in front of you to suggest that this is actually happening? Or is it really a construct of, of some other way, you know, it's, it's a way of coping, it's a way of uh, understanding the world that has been developed over years of of you know ways of thinking. So really working with my therapist Jill has helped me to kind of very much break down the thought patterns that I was having and to reframe them and then to understand when I have these thoughts, what are the what are the behaviors associated with that thought? So is it checking, you know, sort of like doing breast self-exam kind of almost compulsively? Um, you know, is it um, you know, there's lots of different behaviors that that are associated with health anxiety you know, being hypochondriac is, is one, but, you know, sort of working through that with her, when I went into therapy, I thought it was because I was burned out from work. I thought it was because the stress of having two children. I thought it was because of, um, you know, my mom dying. Sure. But what I learned through therapy was actually all of this started way before my mom even got sick that this was, these were patterns of behavior and thoughts that had developed in, in childhood for me because my parents' marriage was very volatile, because my parents were, I mean, alcoholics, like, let's say, say what it was, um, and they used alcohol to cope, and um, there was just a lot of destructive sort of family, very toxic family dynamic that I grew up in, and so that was the real shocker of therapy. I was like, oh, no, 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 I dealt with that stuff before. Like, I don't, I don't need to go back there. And she's like, mm, yeah, I think we're going to go back because that's really what's happening here is this very um, toxic kind of destructive pattern of um, turning my anger in on myself and doing trying to make myself perfect, trying to make myself impermeable, trying to make myself uh, constantly protected in my own fortress of what I call my fortress of solitude, where I don't need anyone or anything. I am completely independent. I need no one to help me do anything. I'll always do it on my own. That was a product of being a kid in the family that I grew up in, where I was not seen, not heard. I was a burden. Nobody took care of my emotional needs or my psychological needs. In fact, those were, um, that it was dangerous in my family to say that you needed something from my parents. You don't count on anybody. You take care of yourself. That's it. That's all. Um, and so I had to undo that through CBT.
I had to reframe a lot of the behaviors and a lot of the thoughts that I had. Um, and it's really worked. Like I didn't believe it at the beginning. I went in and I, you know, she was like, okay, well, you know, you're going to come every two weeks. I was like, oh God, really? That's a lot of therapy. And she's like, you're in crisis. And I think that that's, you know, from a treatment perspective, that's what's going to need. So I did it for like six, eight weeks. And I remember going into her office going like, I don't think this is working. You know, I just, I just don't think it's worth it. And she actually laughed and said, oh, like, there's so much more we have to do. She's like, give me, you know, she said, give me six months. Give me a really solid six months. And I said, okay. And I did. And it's the hardest work I've ever done. It was excruciating. Like I literally had to like strip myself back to the hardest parts of my childhood, the most traumatic things that I went through, the things that I witnessed. Um, and having to talk through all of that and work through all of that was devastating, devastating. You know, anybody who says like therapy isn't hard is lying because it is. If it's working, you're, you know, it's really hard. Um, and after six months of being severely depressed, I actually started to feel better. And I felt like I was, my mood was improving and I, you know, my emotions were more under control and I felt better. And, um, you know, it's just been progressively better and better. And it's interesting after six years, I thought, I can't possibly have anything else to talk to her about. I mean, haven't we just discussed, like, haven't we covered the waterfront? And amazingly, no, there are still things that come up because grief is like that. You get to different parts of your life, especially with my daughter turning 12 this year. It's so interesting for me because my teen years were an absolute nightmare for me. I realized that I, my grief is transforming in relation to her getting older because now we have these times together that remind me so much of my mom and I. And it's just tough. There's just like a lot of stuff that comes up when you're a parent. And it's, yeah, there's always something. There's always something. I wanted to get it out there a little bit because I think sometimes it's amazing that you can retrain your brain. A lot of times it's just those thoughts, that narrative that we've been taught and have grown up with, those thoughts that we give them weight, that they are true and they are right and they're not. No. But, you know, you can't undo 30 years of believing, um, you know, overnight, but you can retrain your brain, which I just find amazing. And yeah. if there's any sort of a daughter without a mom researcher person out there, because I feel like, and maybe it's when you lose your mom by a certain age, um, like you, you're blonde and I'm a brunette, but I was like, you are like exactly describing what I did and what I went through because I was so independent because that was my protective mechanism. Because if I didn't love them and they, they died, I wouldn't get hurt. And it's one of the things that my husband was attracted to me, we met, like knocking on the door, like, let me in. Can you, can you let me in? <laughs> that makes me sick the other day. She was like, okay, I think I know your fortress of solitude, like, well enough. Can you just trust me on this now? Like, I think I've proven myself. It's been 20 plus years. I'm like, yes, yes, I know. But these things are so ingrained, right? It's such a protective mechanism. And so you're right as we get into this very different part now this very different phase of our marriage i have to figure out how to let the gate come down over the moat like that's the you know 
the castle analogy that I use sometimes because it's not helpful. It's not helpful anymore. There was a point in my life when it was really helpful. It was necessary. It was life-saving. And now it's, it's not needed anymore. I'm not in danger. And, and I know that, you know, this is something that I can, I can work through, but you're right. There's, there's a very instinctual part of that, that I have to work on retraining myself um, to not do, which is hard. That's a lot of hard work. Well, and because it's our comfort zone, like for years, it was our protection and made us feel good and safe and comfortable. It's hard to, you know, to, but I'm learning. So I got a few years on you, Janice. We will put in the show notes, um, a link to Thank your you. website, a link to your, when is the upcoming event in April? It's on April 30th here in Ottawa. If you're listening and you're in the area and are interested in that, you can find that link in the show notes too. And any other things that Janet wants to share, resources that she wants to share with the listeners, all those details, your, your Instagram handle, which is Mother Love Project, right? Yeah. So we will put all that in the show notes so you find all the things for Janet there. Um, and, and if you're listening, and a lot of people listen and, and talking about their stories isn't their thing. A lot of people for listening to people's stories, it's not their thing. So if, but if you're listening and you feel like you'd rather submit your story, Janet's link will be in there. And however you choose to share your story, whether it's verbal or written, I do believe when you're at the place that you feel comfortable doing so, that it's a huge part of the healing process. Yes. It's been hugely, it's been transformative for me. I just, it's been so healing for me to talk about my mom because, you know, when your mother dies, especially when you're young, like you and I, and all of these years go by, the people who knew her, they're not around anymore. And to talk about her is so, fills me with a lot of joy. And just to say her name even is, is so um, powerful for me because I spent years never talking about her, never talked about her, didn't say her name, uh, no one asked me questions about her. Um, and so I think it's really been super healing for me to do this. Yeah, it makes me feel really good to, to put it out in the world. And it doesn't make me sad. It just makes me feel good. Well, Janet, I usually wrap up the podcast. If you have a final thought you want to share. Yeah, I would say, even though it feels scary and it feels uncomfortable to face your grief, it's so worth it. And whatever way that looks like for you, if it's prayer, if it's meditation, if it's writing, if it's talking to a therapist if it's you know going to a support group whatever it looks like for you find an outlet find a way that is supportive creative or you know just find a way to connect with your grief because it's always there it doesn't go anywhere you can run from it as much as you like it's just gonna follow you and it's okay it's normal I think that's the thing that we need to normalize in our society is that our grief lives with us and that's okay we need to embrace it and make friends with it <laughs> acknowledge that it's there uh, even when it's inconvenient I think that it's it's a very normal part of the healing process and that there you know there there may be stages to grief whatever but it's not linear and things are going to come up and you're going to feel anger and resentment and jealousy and bitterness and all that kind of stuff and that's normal too 
and there's nothing wrong with you. You're totally like the rest of us. And we're, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a fine group of people to be around and there's lots of resources. So, you know, I think if somebody is struggling with how they're feeling, um, the internet is definitely your friend. And there's definitely a community of gravers on, you know, Instagram and Facebook, people that that want to support and love and encourage and reflect back to you that what you're feeling is totally okay. So that's what I would say. Thank you for having me, Beth. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.